Good morning. I'm Kevin, the discipleship pastor at Charles River Church. And I'm, honestly, I am pumped to continue in the Hidden Figures series this morning. But let's start things off right and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you uh, that you are here, that you know us inside and out, and that you love us with a steadfast love. God, thank you for the opportunity to learn from these men and women from your word. Lord, we know that you had a unique plan for each one of them, and you had them recorded in order that we can learn and that we can learn more about your heart and the heart of our Savior, Jesus, that we may become more like him. So God, please soften our hearts, sharpen our minds to receive what it is you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I thought it'd be fun to start off this morning with a game. So you guys can play along at home if you're watching with somebody. You, you guys play along, see if you can get it. If, you, if you're alone, or, or just you can write your answer in the comments or, or, or wherever. But we wanna, we wanna start off this morning with a game. And I'm gonna list off a number of historical figures. And you guys try and guess what they have in common. You ready? Here we go. Henry VIII. Elizabeth I, Empress Wu, Suleiman, Attila the Hun, Herod the Great. What do all of those historical figures have in common? Did you say that they were all rulers in some way, shape, or form? You're right. Did you say that they all had members of their own family killed in order to consolidate power? You're also right. See, all of these individuals had members of their own family killed in order to consolidate power. That makes sense, honestly, from a historical perspective. To, once you rise to power, when a new family would come into power, their number one goal was to consolidate power in order to establish peace. Well, the best way and the easiest way to establish peace is to kill anybody who isn't making peace or is a threat to your power. And so throughout history, that was fairly normal. Honestly, the fact that we live in a country that we've had 47, uh, 45 different presidents and 45 different moderately transfers of power is unique and kind of incredible and unheard of in the scope of history. Well, this morning in our Hidden Figure series, I want to focus in on somebody who wasn't killed uh, when power was consolidated. In fact, he was shown steadfast covenant love, and his name is Mephibosheth. Say it with me, Mephibosheth. Children at home, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the grandson of Israel's first king, King Saul. He was the son of Jonathan, and Jonathan was David's best friend, just that, that best friend that when you get together, your, your hearts are just knit together, like, like that kind of a friend. And, and Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, and we learn about him in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel is a book of transition. It transitions out of the book of Judges, where God had judges rule over Israel, like Israel would get out of control and God would raise up a judge in order to, to, to vanquish the enemies and to, to bring some sort of rule, and it was just this downward spiral. And, and Samuel was the last judge of Israel, and he was also a prophet of God. And it's a long story that you should totally check out, uh, but in order to keep things concise, God took Samuel and told him to go anoint this man Saul to be king. 
Again, another long story. Saul ends up kind of blowing it by taking matters into his own hands. And rather than regarding God's word, he disregards God's word. He takes matters into his own hand. And God kind of releases his hand from Saul and sends Samuel to go anoint another man to be king, the shepherd, David, that young man, David. And so you have this amazing story where Saul is on the throne of Israel Yet King, uh, David has already been anointed king and, and Saul is sensing this threat to his power and so he tries to have David killed over and over, tries to kill him himself over and over. And you have this juxtaposition of David, the righteous man, who has the opportunity to take things into his own hands, take matters into his own hands and kill Saul. Has the opportunity to kill Saul on a number of occasions but never acts on it because God wanted a man after his own heart to shepherd Israel, to point Israel to what God was truly like. And David was that man. Well, eventually, Saul and Jonathan do die in battle. And David is devastated by that. But that's when we are introduced to this man, Mephibosheth. And I say man. In fact, at the time we're introduced to him, he's five years old because his nurse hears that Saul and Jonathan have both been killed in battle. And she fears that now this next king who's coming into power is going to try and kill young Mephibosheth. So she, in, in her desire to protect him, picks him up. And in her haste to run and hide him away, she drops him. And he becomes crippled in both of his feet when he's five years old. Now, the story goes on. David is, uh, he's coronated as king. And years go by and he consolidates power within Israel. Years go by, and he, he vanquishes Israel's enemies. He establishes Jer Jerusalem, and there's a period of relative peace. And then he seeks out somebody from Saul's line, not to end Saul's line, but to bless Saul's line, because that's what God does. He doles out grace when we least expect it. So let's read together 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? That word kindness, we read it once in verse 1. He wants to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And now he wants to show him the kindness of God. Put a pin in that word kindness. Remember that word kindness. It's going to happen another time here in the story. Continuing on, Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Macher, the son of Amiel at Lodebar. And David sent and brought him from the house of Macher, the son of Amiel at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, paid homage, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He doesn't understand it. Mephibosheth doesn't understand it. Why, why would you show me favor? Why would you show me kindness? Continue on. 
Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is a very surprising and beautiful story. And I think it might lose the impact and the surprise on us that it once had on its original audience because we live in a world that has been affected by Jesus for 2,000 years. But this is a very, very surprising story, very out of the ordinary. Not only does David not kill the potential rival to the throne, he blesses him with abundant favor invites him in, makes sure that all of his needs are taken care of, and essentially adopts him as one of his sons. You are going to eat at my table with me. You have servants now who can meet all of your needs. One of his perceived enemies, he blesses. And it's all because of one word. And the word is chesed. You really got to get that phlegm in there to get it right, chesed. Now, I'm only, uh, it's this Hebrew word, and, and, and I'm only a 12th Jewish, so I can only get it a 12th pronounced correctly. But three times in this passage, verse 1, verse 3, and verse 7, David wants to show kindness to the remnant of Saul's line. Now, that word kindness, it's a good translation, but when I think kindness, I'm like, this guy opened the door for me. That was kind, or, or something like that. This is above and beyond that level of kindness. It's kind of, a, a, it's kind of weak sauce compared to, to what it truly is. It's this, this, there's no real English equivalent. It's this loyal love. It's grace. This, this love as a decision, not as a feeling. It's an active choice to give favor to somebody regardless of what they've done or how they make you feel. See, in, in Psalm 136, it's, it's, that, it's that psalm that a lot of you guys know. It has that, that refrain, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Give, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures, for his steadfast love endures forever. He, he delivered us out of captivity in Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. He parted the Red Sea so that we could walk through on dry land, for his steadfast love endures forever. He brought us into the promised land, for his steadfast love endures forever. He remembered us in our lowly estate and provides for us. His steadfast love endures forever. That steadfast love there in Psalm 136 is also the Hebrew word chesed. It's steadfast. It's like a powerful form of love. It's not a love that takes you captive, but it's a love that you make a decision to act upon. And it's that kind of love, that love not based on how I feel, but based upon a decision that I have made is what is going to change the world. That kind of love, chesed. See, I think in the West, we've been so enraptured for, for like a hundred years with this concept of karma. 
And I think partly it's because it was novel and it come, came over here and, and people kind of gravitated to it because it was new and, and we loved new ideas, new things. But it, I, I think partly it was also because it makes sense. Like karma seems to make sense. Like, like somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're like, oh, come on, karma. Like somebody cut that jerk off so that he gets his day ruined the same way that he ruined my day. Or on the other end, like I'm giving money to a charity. I'm helping out this person over here. My good thing is coming. Come on, karma. And, and it kind of makes sense to us because it, it's, it's, it appeals to our sin nature is what it does. And it's something that we feel like we can manipulate. It takes God off of the throne. And it, we, we, we walk up those steps. We take God off the throne. We sit down in his chair and we say, all right, now I'm going to manipulate the universe so that all of these things work for me. Because that's, that's essentially what it says. It puts us on the throne. And if we pat it just the right way, we can get it to purr for us. And it's going to give us the treats that we want. But at its heart, it's idolatry. At its heart, it's sin. And to be totally blunt, compared to what Jesus offers, it's weak. It's total weak sauce. It's lame. Like karma at its core, it says you get what you deserve. And that's comforting for a lot of people. You're going to get what you deserve. Or that person will get what they deserve. But if you're honest and you really examine your heart, bro, you don't want what you deserve. Check your motives. You don't want what you deserve. I can only speak for myself, but I know that even in my most altruistic, my most giving, my most generous moments, there's a little bit of pride tinged in there. There's a little bit of selfishness tinged in there. So karma says you get what you deserve. Bro, you don't deserve anything. None of us deserve anything. We're the ones who walked up onto that throne and took God off. All we deserve is judgment. You don't want what you deserve. Karma says you get what you deserve. Hased, loyal, covenant, steadfast love, grace, says you don't get what you deserve. You get what Jesus deserves. Now let's weigh those two options. You can get what you deserve or you can get what Jesus deserves. Who are you? You're probably an okay person. Who is Jesus? The king of the universe. The one who never sinned, the one who healed, the one who, who fed thousands of people, the one who met physical, tangible needs, never did one thing wrong. Do you want what you deserve or do you want what Jesus deserves? We're sinners and we get the steadfast covenant love of God through him. You're an enemy of God and you're adopted into his family and he invites you to eat at his table. It defies logic. It defies reason. It doesn't make sense. It's an irrational kind of thing. And that's what makes it the most powerful thing in the universe, the most powerful force on the face of the earth. Let me give you two quick stories that I hope will, will kind of flesh this out a little bit for you. A couple weeks ago, um, this won't surprise anybody who knows me, but a couple weeks ago, I was at the Dunkin' Donuts drive-thru waiting to get my iced coffee. And as I pulled in, um, I saw a guy on a motorcycle. And I didn't think twice about it until I looked, and he had this massive flag hanging off the back of his bike. And one half of the flag was the American flag. And then right in the middle, it had that sweet snake, that don't tread on me snake. And then on the other side of the flag was the Confederate flag. So it was like the American flag that faded into the Confederate flag with the snake in the middle. And I thought, okay, well, this is going to be interesting. And sure enough, within a minute, it was a long line at Duncan, uh, praise Jesus. But uh, within a minute 
of sitting in line, uh, a woman had gotten out of a car, white woman, white guy on the bike, uh, but a white woman gets out of her car and starts yelling at him, starts screaming at him and berating him about how he is racist, how he is foolish, how he should be ashamed of himself. And, and I watched the whole situation played out. I could have written it. And I get my coffee and I go on my way and I never saw those people again, but I can almost guarantee you that I know what happened when they parted ways. I can almost guarantee you. Uh, I can almost guarantee that, that she ended up going her separate way, feeling morally superior to him, and going home and telling all of her friends about this idiot, this, this low life that she saw at the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot that she screamed at, she probably made a Facebook post and got a bunch of likes. Then for him, I can almost guarantee that he went his separate way and told all his friends about this Karen who yelled at him while he was minding his own business in the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. Now, both of these folks went home angrier than when they started, and I can almost guarantee that neither of their minds were changed, and they, in fact, had dug their heels in deeper. Let me tell you another story. A story about a man named Daryl Davis. And even if you don't know his name, there's a chance that you know his story. It was covered in the National, uh, in, in, in all corners. I heard it on a podcast uh, first. But Daryl Davis, born in Chicago, actually grew up in Belmont, Mass., uh, a black guy, uh, musician by trade. But when he was in Cub Scouts, or Boy Scouts, uh, as, a, as, a, as a child in Belmont, he was one of the only black people in the community. And he experienced racism for the first time as he was marching in a Boy Scout parade. And, and people from the crowd started throwing things at him and calling him names. And he couldn't understand it. Like, how would this, how, how can these people hate me just because of the color of my skin. Like it just didn't register for him. But he wouldn't let it go. So he grew up, he became a musician, but he also just dedicated his life to trying to understand where does this mentality come from? Like why would somebody hate people based on the color of their skin? And he, he started to write a book and he, he created this really clever plan where he actually reached out, he had his secretary actually reach out to the head of the Ku Klux Klan and they uh, didn't tell him that he was a black guy. And he, they arranged a meeting in a hotel room. And the head of the Klan shows up at this hotel room and then realizes that he's going to be interviewing with a black man. And to his credit, he actually sat down for the interview. Now, he didn't treat him as an equal. He, taught, he, he treated him as somebody who could learn from, from the superior white man, the head of the, the Klan. But what Daryl Davis did is that he showed him respect when he didn't deserve it. He showed him love when he didn't deserve it. And he showed him hospitality when he didn't deserve it. And he invited him to his home. And over the course of years, he broke down walls with that man. And over the course of years, that man ended up leaving the Klan and giving Daryl Davis his robe, the head of the Klan in America, because of Hesed. And Daryl Davis was responsible for hundreds of individuals freely, willingly giving up their robes, leaving the clan and having their hearts changed because he showed them love when that's not what they deserved. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of Hased, grace. That God would see selfish, self-centered, sinful humanity who desire to get him off of the throne so that we can manipulate the universe to benefit ourselves. And rather than condemn us, he places his chesed upon us. 
his covenant love, his steadfast love, his never going anywhere kind of love through Jesus Christ. It's the kind of love that the true king of kings, Jesus, the, the king that's greater than, the king, uh, than king David showed when he was sacrificed for the sins of the world, paying the penalties for our sins, when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what changes the world, grace. And that's the message that we carry, church, grace, grace. And that's the kind of grace, that's the kind of chesed love that, that David, the man after God's own heart, showed to Mephibosheth. But did you guys catch what I did there? I kind of I pulled a fast one on you. This sermon isn't supposed to be on what we can learn from King David. The sermon is supposed to be about Mephibosheth. So what did Mephibosheth do? He received grace. He received it. See, verse 13, it says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. He didn't fight it. He didn't understand it. Right? He, he asked David, like, who are you to regard a dead dog such as me? He didn't understand it, but he did receive it. And that's one of the most difficult things for us. We want to earn we want to earn favor. We want to earn because it boosts our pride. It fits in with our selfish ambitions. But you cannot earn grace. It's unearned favor. It's in the definition. You can't earn it. It's not given based on anything that you do. It's not given based on the, because of who you are. It's given because of who God is. God doesn't love you because you're amazing. God loves you because he's amazing. That's the most comforting thing that I can ever hear. And I pray that it's the most comforting thing that you would ever hear. I want to leave you with this. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though... Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christian, sit in that. Bask in that. Revel in that. Receive that. Meditate on that. I don't care if you've heard it 10,000 times before. Don't let that get crusty. Receive it. And you need to, to live out of a place where you are receiving that grace. Because the more you consider it, the more confusing it's going to become. God, how could you look on a dead dog like me and show me your favor to give me this inheritance of the entire universe that Jesus earned? I didn't earn it. It doesn't make sense. But that's the point. is that you are loved because of Christ no matter what. And that's the message that we carry. And that's the message that will change the world. Let's pray.
Father, you are so good. You are so gracious. God, forgive us, forgive me for actively seeking to earn your approval. Lord, help me and all these people watching today to live out of a place of receiving your grace. Father, you are just full of goodness and we don't deserve it and we don't understand it. But Lord, we receive it and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.